Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by a special guest. Last week I talked to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I argued that knowing what we do about the historical facts surrounding the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth and the origin of the Christian church, it is rational to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And conversely, it's irrational not to. And then I said that that case, that argument, that belief about the resurrection of Jesus is itself a great reason to believe in Christianity and to embrace the Christian worldview and the Christian faith. It's not the only reason to do so. There are many other reasons and arguments that we could offer and discuss. But by my lights, the resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest reason to believe in Christianity. Now this week, I'd like to to look at things from a slightly different perspective, and I would like us to consider what is probably the most common reason that people sometimes do not believe in Christianity. The reason given that many unbelievers uh, reject the faith and refuse to believe in God. And that is the problem of evil and suffering. I have found, generally, when dealing with unbelievers, especially with those who are vocally atheistic, that there are a number of critical issues, a number of questions, a number of doubts that inevitably come up, but that ultimately it always comes back to this one. How can there be an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God if there is evil and suffering in the world? This idea, this impulse was expressed very passionately by the actor Stephen Fry a few years ago. He is a British actor, a marvelous actor, very gifted man, but also a very outspoken atheist. And he was being interviewed, and in the course of the interview, he was asked, here you are an atheist, you, you reject God, you reject the claims of Christianity. What will you say if after you die, you find yourself in God's presence? It's an interesting question. It's one that we should all probably think about and ponder at least once in our lives. And here's how Stephen Fry answered that question. I would say to God, bone cancer in children, what's that all about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-spirited, or mean-minded And I think I'll stop reading the quotation there because the rest of that really is blasphemous, and I try not to vocalize blasphemous statements from the pulpit if I can help it. But uh, read through that, and you'll, you'll kind of feel the rhetorical force of this statement that Stephen Fry makes. And as he does so, I think he speaks on behalf of a great number of atheists and unbelievers all around the world. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have walked with God, if you have experienced His kindness and His mercy and His goodness in your life, then you, like me, probably react to this by cringing just a bit, right? Uh, How can He say these things about our God and our Jesus, whom we know and love? But just for the sake of argument, try to set that aside for a moment and, and think about what it would be like if you did not know Jesus, if you had not believed in his word and been saved and learned to walk with God, if you were viewing the world and the universe around you through the eyes of an unbeliever, you can kind of see his point, can't you? Maybe we wouldn't put it in quite those terms, but 
You know, this is a rather difficult existence that we have. This is a world full of evil and suffering and misery. And there does seem to be a tension, doesn't there? Between the fact of evil and suffering, which all of us have experienced and none of us can deny, and the truth claims of Christianity that there is a God who loves you, who cares about you, who is all-powerful and always in control. And as I said, when I've discussed the issues of theism and Christianity and apologetics with unbelievers, I've generally found that it always comes back to this issue for them, evil and suffering. Uh, here's how Alex Rosenberg put it. He is a, a atheist, a very well-known atheistic philosopher at Duke University. And this comment came in the context of a public debate that he had a few years ago with uh, the Christian apologist William Lane Craig on the subject of God's existence. Here's what Rosenberg said during that debate. He said, now Christian philosophers have been worried about this problem from hell, that's the problem of evil and suffering, at least since the greatest of them, Leibniz, okay? And they've done handsprings and twisted themselves up in knots to try to find some explanation. Because logically speaking, if God is omniscient and God is omnipotent and God is truly benevolent, has a totally good will and would never will anything but for the best, then the existence of suffering on our planet, human suffering and natural suffering of others, animals for example, is something that needs desperately to be explained. And I find it perplexing. In all honesty, if Dr. Craig could provide me with any kind of a logical, coherent account that could reconcile the evident fact of the horrors of human and infrahuman life on this planet over the last three and a half billion years with the existence of a benevolent, omnipotent agent, then I will turn Christian. It's rather a shocking and startling statement particularly if you're familiar with Alex Rosenberg and his work, because he has all kinds of arguments for why he doesn't believe in God, and he's written multiple books about it. And yet here we find, at the end of it all, it's really just the problem of evil and suffering for him. If we can solve that one, then uh, all the other objections, all the other criticisms apparently don't matter all that much. And as I've said, I think this is truly the case for many, many unbelievers and critics. And so if that's true, then I think it behooves us as Christians to think through this problem and to address it and to assess it and, and to think through how we ought to regard it as Christians and how we ought to respond to it. So that's what I want to do with you this morning. Before we proceed, however, I should make a couple of necessary distinctions. Uh, John Feinberg is a... Uh, a theologian, a philosopher here in our neck of the woods uh, over at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's written a marvelous book on the problem of evil. And in that book, he, he makes the case that there are actually several different kinds or several different types of the problem of evil and suffering. In other words, it's a misnomer to say the problem singular of evil and suffering. There are several problems of evil and suffering. There is the logical version of the problem of evil. There is the evidential problem of evil. And then there is the religious or emotional problem of evil. And each of these is a distinct argument, a distinct problem, and they need to be dealt with distinctly and on their own terms. So I'll define those terms for you as we move through them here this morning, but just bear this threefold distinction in mind. Point number one I want to leave you with this morning is that the problem of evil is answerable. It is answerable. It's, it's, it's not a perplexing question that, that is unanswerable and that we'll just have to, to scratch our heads about for all eternity. No, it, it is answerable. I'll start by, by talking through the logical version of the problem of evil, which can be summarized this way. If God, why evil? This version of the problem asserts that there is a fundamental contradiction, a logical contradiction, between the presence of evil and suffering 
and the notion of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Here's how Epicurus phrased it a long time ago in the third century BC. He said, if God, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? It's a rather arresting way of stating the problem. And again, at first glance, you can kind of see what he's getting at. If we were to take this version of the problem of evil and and put it in a, a formal logical syllogism, which is the way that deductive reasoning is done, it would look like this. Premise one, if God is all powerful, then he can defeat evil. And that's true. Premise two, if God is all good, then he would defeat evil. Premise three, but evil is not defeated, and therefore the conclusion, hence, there is no all-powerful and all-good God. And again, at first blush, it seems like a reasonable statement, a reasonable argument. You can kind of see how you would get to that conclusion, can't you? But I think there's a problem, and I think the problem comes here in premise two, because there's some unstated assumptions here. What this is really saying is that if God is all good, then he would defeat evil in the exact way and at the exact time that I want him to, right? And and that's where the thinking, I believe, starts to break down. The response goes like this. What if God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering? If he does, then premise two is invalidated and the entire argument collapses in on itself. Because if God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering, then it is not true that God would automatically, instantaneously eliminate all evil, and therefore there's just no case to be made. And I think we can argue that God could well have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering. Uh, Furthermore, I would argue that this is not a foreign concept to us. Even in our own human framework, even in our own human existence, we kind of understand this. And all throughout life, there are cases where we would understand permitting some form of evil and suffering in order to attain to a higher goal or a higher good. Let me give you a few examples from my life and from my children's lives. If you were to talk to my two sons and ask them what the the greatest cause of suffering is in their life, they would probably reply without missing a beat, it is school, right? Anybody else have kids that would would profess that school is just a a malevolent force and it causes untold evil and suffering? And to to hear them describe the, the pains and the horrors of going to school every day, you'd think they were being shoved away in gulags or something. But, uh... You know, oh, to go to school, so frustrating, so, so painful. And it's really not, but from their perspective, it's really a serious source of suffering. And in theory, I could alleviate them of that suffering and that pain and that evil, couldn't I? I guess I'd be breaking the law, but no, don't worry about it. You don't have to go to school today. Just rest, relax, watch TV. They'd like that. But I wouldn't really be good and that wouldn't really be loving, would it? to say nothing of the fact that I'd be breaking the law. You see, we understand that in order to attain to a higher good, to a higher purpose, it's necessary for kids to go to school so that they can develop develop their thinking and develop the life skills that they're going to need to be effective and happy and so on and so forth throughout the rest of their lives. So we permit that suffering for a time. Here's another one. Anybody, uh, Anybody have kids that complain about eating vegetables? I really hope I'm not the only one. 
oh, I have to eat broccoli again tonight, you know. And again, horrendous suffering to hear them complain about it. And I could, in theory, alleviate them of it. Oh, Father, take this cup from me. Takes on a new, uh, new significance there, doesn't it? Don't worry about it. You don't have to eat your peas. You don't have to eat your carrots. You can just have chocolate cake for every, every meal. And they would thoroughly enjoy that, I'm sure. But again, that would not be good or loving because all of us understand that there is a higher good, a higher goal, a higher purpose that if they don't eat healthy, then they're not going to be healthy and the rest of their lives, they will suffer for it. So we allow some short-term suffering in order to allow or to contribute to a higher goal and a higher good. Here's another one. A little while ago, I took the training wheels off my kids' bicycles, and I did so with the absolute infallible foreknowledge that doing so was going to cause them pain. I knew it was going to cause them pain because when I was a kid, my dad took my training wheels off my bike, and sure enough, I fell off, and I scraped myself, and I hurt myself, and I suffered as a direct result of of what he did. And sure enough, my expectations were not disappointed. Here's uh, Here's what my son looked like after the first major spill off of his bicycle. Had to go down to the urgent care and get himself all stitched up. Three stitches in his chin. Very painful. Definitely a case of evil and suffering. And it was my fault, right? Because I was the one who took off those training wheels. Well, was that unjust of me? No, I would argue I had morally sufficient reasons for permitting this temporary suffering, this temporary evil, in order that he can attain to a higher good and a higher goal. Because in the long run, he's going to have way more fun and have a better experience if he learns to ride for himself and not to rely on the training wheels all the time. So... We understand, even in our own human scope, our human frame of reference, that sometimes it is morally permissible to allow evil and suffering for a higher good. And I'm not suggesting that these examples from my kid's life are exactly on the same scope as God permitting the Holocaust, for example. That that would be silly. I'm just using it to illustrate the principle that there can be morally sufficient reasons for permitting suffering. And I think we all understand that. So next, people are going to want to know what are the reasons that God has for permitting evil and suffering. And that's where I tend to be a little bit less dogmatic because I'm just not sure that God has revealed all of those reasons to us. But down through the years, this field of philosophical and theological inquiry has developed called theodicy. And in theodicy, theologians try to give uh, possible reasons that God may have for permitting evil and suffering. Here's just a few of them. First of all, the free will defense. This is probably the oldest theodicy, and the free will defense goes something like this. God created us not as automatons, not as robots. He gave us free moral agency so that we could, of our own volition, choose to do good or to do evil, choose to respond to him in love or choose to turn away from him in rebellion. And he did that both because free will is in and of itself a higher good— And because it is more praiseworthy to choose to love God of our own volition rather than being forced or coerced into it. That's how the free will defense goes, and it's been around for a long time. Second possible reason is the soul-building defense. And this view was developed by the religious philosopher John Hick, the late John Hick now. He was not a believer in any sense that we would recognize. He was a religious pluralist and a modernist, but he was a religious philosopher and he worked in this area of theodicy. And, and his view would go like this. He would say, 
Evil and suffering are obviously bad, and so avoiding evil and suffering is good. But there are also higher goods that relate to our character traits and the development of our hearts and our souls. And it is exceedingly good to develop things like nobility, sacrifice, selflessness, charity, mercy, those sorts of character traits. And the only context in which those kind of character traits can be built, the only context in which our souls and our hearts can be built to make us into the people that God truly wants us to be for our good is a world in which evil and suffering exist. And so John Hick would say that is a morally sufficient reason for God to permit evil and suffering. There's a third one that John Feinberg has developed, which I call the livability of life. It goes something like this. God has decided to create a world, not just any world, but a world that is inhabited by unglorified beings like you and me. And that in a world like that, we are going to be prone to commit acts that will result in evil and suffering or that will be tainted by evil. In fact, it's estimated that uh, the average person makes 35,000 decisions per day. And on any given day, because of our fallenness, because of our finitude, some of those decisions are going to be evil, or they're going to result in evil and suffering. And so Feinberg argues, in order to eliminate all evil and suffering, God would have to intervene so frequently in the course of events that life would basically cease to be livable as he designed it. And you can, you can see that if you just do a little bit of basic math. If, if each person is making 35,000 decisions per day, let's just be generous and say that only a quarter of those are going to result in evil or suffering or are going to be tainted by evil motives. That would be about 8,750 decisions that God's going to have to personally, individually intervene to stop in your life and in mine each and every day. And it's estimated that there's about 5.5 billion adults on planet Earth, age 14 or older. So if you just do a little multiplication, that comes out to about 48 trillion, 125 billion decisions every single day that God's going to have to step in and, and personally, miraculously change or stop in order to eliminate all evil and suffering from the world. So that would result in a non-livable life, a non-livable world. And so that could be reasons for God to permit evil and suffering. Now, maybe one of these answers is the best one. Maybe a combination of them is good. Maybe there are even additional possible reasons that we have not yet thought through or uncovered. Uh, the point is this. I think it's clear that God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering. And if that is indeed the case, then the logical version of the problem of evil collapses in on itself. Because that second premise that God must defeat, destroy, eradicate evil simply is not true. And therefore, the argument does not work. Uh, some unbelieving philosophers have begun to realize that, as a matter of fact. Here's Paul Draper. He's an agnostic philosopher at Purdue University. He says, logical arguments from evil are a dying or perhaps even dead breed. For all we know, even an omnipotent and omniscient being might be forced to allow evil for the sake of obtaining some important good. Our knowledge of goods and evils and the logical relations they bear to each other is much too limited to prove that this could not be the case. Now, I think he's right. So much for the logical version of the problem of evil. Well, that brings us to the next version, which is the evidential problem of evil. And that could be summarized this way. If God, why so much evil? 
So maybe you'll say, okay, okay, I'll grant that theoretically, for the sake of argument, perhaps God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil and suffering, but why did he have to permit so much of it, huh? You know, you look around this universe and there's just tons and tons and tons of misery and suffering and evil and injustice. Couldn't God have gotten by with less of it and still achieved those higher purposes that that he seems to have? Uh, once again, here's Alex Rosenberg vocalizing this, uh, this particular view. Again, in the context of that debate, he says, Dr. Craig needs to tell us exactly how an omnipotent God and an entirely benevolent God had to have the Holocaust in order to produce the good outcome, whatever it might be, that he intends for our ultimate providence. Couldn't he have just gotten away with World War I or the Great Leap Forward or the Thirty Years' War, which, unto- which killed untold millions, or the bubonic plague that killed 40% of the population of Europe? Did he have to have every one of those in order to produce the kind of beneficent outcome which it is divine providence to expect? I just don't see it. And once again, at first glance, you can kind of see how you would arrive at this view, because there is an awful lot of evil and suffering, and history tells of untold misery that's been experienced down through the years, and couldn't God have minimized it? And since presumably he could have, why didn't he? But I think there's a problem with this version of the problem of evil as well, and that is human subjectivity. We are finite, our viewpoint is subjective, And so because of our finite subjective viewpoint, we're really just not in any position to look at the evil and the suffering around us and to make any kind of an objective determination as far as how much is too much or how much is just right. You know, we we look at an instance of evil or suffering like this, and we view it in, in kind of an isolated way, disconnected from all the other events in the universe and down throughout history. If you could have a God's eye view of things, if you could look at things as an omniscient, omnipresent being would, then it would look more like this, and you could see it in its interconnectedness with everything else, and then perhaps you would be in a place, you would be in a position uh, to render some judgment as to how much evil is just enough or how much is too much. But again, we don't have that. We're just left with this single viewpoint. It's isolated. Uh, We can't really see the entire picture, and therefore, we're really in no position to make a judgment one way or the other. Let's take the Holocaust, for example. And usually when we think of evil and suffering and untold misery, this is the first example that comes to our minds, right? And rightly so. And here's an event in which 17 million people are systematically butchered over a period of a few years. It's wicked. It's depraved. It's disheartening. And someone like Alex Rosenberg or another unbeliever is going to look at that and say it's just way too much. 17 million deaths. That's too high. Why didn't God intervene and and make the body count lower? On the other hand, how do we know that he didn't? Because of our subjective finite viewpoint, we just have no way of knowing. Maybe it was going to be 170 million deaths, and God's already stepped in and reduced it down to just one-tenth of what it was going to be. And if that were the case, we would still, after the fact, look at it and say it's just way too much, because we have no way of knowing. We're subjective, we're finite, and that limits our viewpoint, and that limits our ability to make these kind of judgments. Or let's, let's look at uh, the list of Five various tragedies and atrocities that that Alex Rosenberg brought up in the course of that debate. The Holocaust, World War I, the Great Leap Forward, the Thirty Years' War, the Bubonic Plague. Millions and millions of deaths represented here, right? 
And Rosenberg says, why didn't God, if he exists, why didn't he step in and prevent one of these? Why, why couldn't he have, have made do with fewer atrocities and fewer tragedies? Well, okay, just for the sake of argument, let's suppose that God does that. Let's suppose that God steps into history, snaps his fingers, and wipes out, let's just say, the bubonic plague, and it's gone. And now all those people in Europe that died of the bubonic plague instead live happy, thriving lives, or at least as happy and thriving a life as you can live when you're in medieval Europe. Centuries pass. Once again, now Alex Rosenberg and William Lane Craig are assembled together on this debate stage. You think Rosenberg's going to look at those four tragedies and be satisfied? For one thing, he doesn't know that God intervened in history to prevent the bubonic plague, so there's that subjective viewpoint again. And this is still just going to seem like way too much suffering and way too much evil for a beneficent, benevolent God to allow. Well, okay, let's go one step further and suppose now God steps in, snaps his fingers, and erases everything but the Holocaust. Again, Rosenberg's going to look at that and say 17 million deaths, that's too much evil, that's too much pain, that's too much suffering. One step further, suppose God steps down and not only eliminates all of those other uh, tragedies, but he also uh, reduces the body count in the Holocaust by, by one half. So now, rather than 17 million deaths, it's just eight and a half million deaths. That was awfully nice of God to do that for us. But again, unbelievers are going to look at that and see eight and a half million deaths, and they're going to say, that's way too much evil, that's way too much suffering. How can I believe in a God who would allow that? And this is the point to our way of thinking, from our finite subjective viewpoint, any amount of evil and suffering is going to seem like too much evil and suffering. And so because of that, I believe the evidential problem of evil fails. Which brings us to point three, the religious problem of evil. And that can be summed up this way, if God, why this evil? Why this evil that I am experiencing? Why is God permitting me to suffer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this one isn't really an argument against God as much as it is an impulse, a feeling, a universal impulse and feeling because all of us have at one time or another felt it. I'm in pain. I'm experiencing misery. And in the midst of that, God does not seem good and God does not seem present. So in one sense, this is actually the, the, the weakest of the three versions of the problem of evil because it's not really an argument. It's just a feeling or an impulse. But then, on the other hand, it's almost the most difficult, isn't it? Because how do you argue with a feeling? How do you refute an impulse? It's difficult to come to grips with the religious or the emotional problem of evil because, again, it's a universal human experience. Bad things happen. People die. We get hurt. We experience sorrow and sadness and aches and pains and disease. And when that happens, it is very hard to trust in God. And so because this is a feeling and an impulse and it's a universal human experience, I don't have a silver bullet answer for this one. But that being said, I do like what John Lennox had to say about this. He said, if Jesus actually was the Son of God, and I believe he was, it raises a very big question. What is God doing on a cross? And what that tells me, at the least, is this, that God has not remained distant from our human suffering, but has become a part of it. That's not a solution. 
but it is a window into a solution. And I think that's very profound and moving. When I look at Jesus, when I reflect upon his sacrifice on my behalf, when I see what he was willing to undergo, I get a window, a glimpse into the heartbeat of God. And I see that he is not a God who is uncaring. He is not a God who is aloof or who regards our suffering and our pain and the presence of evil on our planet with some kind of a flippant or a cavalier attitude. But rather, he's, he's a God whose heart is pierced to the core when he beholds our misery and our suffering. And he cares so very much about us and our well-being that he is willing to come down into the mud with us. And he is willing to suffer unspeakable brutalities carried, up, carried out upon his person just to save us. Just to demonstrate his love toward us. And I find that very moving. Maybe it doesn't answer all the questions that we have when we are in the midst of a season of suffering and despair. But what it does tell me is this. I can praise God in the good times. And I can also trust God in the bad times. Another point I'd like to make this morning is that the problem of evil is actually incoherent in an atheistic worldview. That is to say that if the problem of evil is a problem for Christianity, it's an even bigger problem for atheism because on the atheistic accounting of the world and the universe and how things came to be the way they are, there's really no such thing as evil and there's really no such thing as good. Here's how Richard Dawkins, the, the British atheist, put it. He, he wrote, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. It's a rather bleak view of things. I think if I believed this about the universe, I would despair. But I've got to give Richard Dawkins credit. He is here being consistent with his worldview. Because if there is no God, then there is no source. There is no transcendent source of good or evil. And so therefore, you can't really even articulate the problem of evil in any meaningful way. Ravi Zacharias explains it as follows. When you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral lawgiver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What exactly is your question? It's a really good point. Atheism cannot account for evil at all. And the whole problem becomes utterly incoherent on their approach to life, the universe, and everything. And the final point I want to leave with you this morning is that the problem of evil is resolvable in the Christian worldview. Maybe it's not resolvable in the exact same way and at the exact same time that we would like for it to be resolved, but it is resolvable. See, the atheists like to talk about the problem of evil, but perhaps you've noticed they don't resolve it. 
They leave you with a, a planet, a world, a universe in which there is much evil and much pain and much suffering and much injustice, and that's just the way it is. No hope for justice, no hope for resolution, no end in sight, just this brutal, violent circle, this cycle of conflict and death and suffering and disease, and it's never-ending until the sun explodes and eventually the heat death of the universe occurs. Very, very bleak. By contrast, in the Christian worldview, evil is resolvable. Let's go back to that syllogism that we looked at earlier with the logical version of the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. If God is all-good, he would defeat evil. But evil is not defeated. Hence, the atheist concludes there's no all-powerful and all-good God. The theologian Norm Geisler said, what if, we just, what if we just reword premise three to make it a little bit more accurate so that now we say evil is not yet defeated, which is true. Well, that changes the conclusion, doesn't it? Hence, evil will one day be defeated. And that's exactly what the Christian faith teaches. You see, the Bible is not, it's not merely a repository of facts or of abstract theological principles. It's also a story, a true story, but a story nonetheless with a beginning and a middle and an end. And briefly summarized, it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We read about that in Genesis 1, how God, by the power of his speech, created an entire universe and specifically a world for us in which there is no pain, no evil, no death, no suffering, no disease. It's a veritable paradise. Exactly the kind of world that we should like to live in if we were given the opportunity. A world, in point of fact, in which there is no problem of evil and suffering. And then we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, and we read about how God created humankind, male and female, in his own image, and placed them in the midst of this paradise with really very few instructions. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3, and we read of the fall of mankind into sin and rebellion. That we, of our own volition, chose to reject the rule of God, chose to rebel against his instructions, chose to go our own way, and as a result, we were cast out of paradise. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, God had said. And sure enough, just as night follows day, death follows sin. We move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, and we find the first human death and the first human homicide out in the field one day, and Cain rises up against his brother and kills him. God had told us to subdue the earth. Instead, we began to subdue one another. And now, death has entered into the human race. And then we move from Genesis 4 into Genesis 5, what I like to call the death chapter. And it is incredibly depressing. These are the generations of Adam, we read. And what follows throughout that chapter is a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And throughout that genealogy, throughout the, the, the generations of Adam, we read this, this macabre refrain like a relentless drumbeat repeating over and over and over, and he died, and he died, and he died. Every generation, every person, rich and poor, bond and, and free, kings and, and subjects, male, female, adult, children, it does not matter the, 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 who you are or where you come from, the death rate remains constant 100%. Adam dies and Seth dies. And as you go down through those generation, 
generations listed in Genesis 5, you find again and again and again, and he died and he died and he died. And that drumbeat, that tendency, that pattern repeats itself down through the ages of human history. Adam died, and Abraham died, and Noah died, and Moses died, and King David died, and Nebuchadnezzar died, and, and Alexander the Great died, and Julius Caesar died, generation after generation, person after person, and he died, and he died, and he died. All those gallons of blood poured out upon the earth, uncountable bodies thrust into uncountable graves in the ground, and he died, and he died, and he died, and it doesn't let up, and it continues with its relentless monotony, and he died, and he died. And he died until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus steps down into time. And he changes the tune. And he changes the words. And he died. And he rose again. And he is alive forever. And so we see that in Jesus Christ, we do not merely have another human example. We do not merely have another influential figure of history who came to earth and lived and died and then the story ends. No, instead in Jesus Christ, we find that history reaches its climax, its crescendo, and that in Jesus, that pattern, that cycle of death and destruction and hell and misery and sorrow is reversed because Jesus is sovereign over death and he is sovereign over the grave and therefore he is sovereign over evil and suffering. That's the middle of the story. And now we turn to the end. You see, before Jesus left us, before he ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Here's what that looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And get this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, that is to say, all those things we've been talking about this morning, all the struggles, all the sorrows, all the pain and sadness and death and disease, all those things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the end of the story and a new beginning. And those of us who hold to the Christian faith, who believe these things, have long held that Jesus will come again, and when he returns in power and glory, he will make all things new. He will do away with the former order of things, all these things that have plagued us, that we've just had to power through and struggle with and struggle against. And once again, paradise will be restored. No more death, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness. That day is coming when Jesus will make all things new. So, the problem of evil. It's a big problem. It's a difficult problem. But I think it can be addressed. As far as arguments go, the problem or problems of evil are answerable. 
I note that the very problem itself is incoherent on an atheistic worldview, but that in the Christian worldview, it is ultimately resolvable. And so because we believe in that, and because we cling to the truths that have been handed down to us from Christ and his apostles down through the ages, we believe that we can praise God in the good times and we can trust God in the hard times. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.com.